You're listening to devpath.fm, the podcast about career development for software engineers. Join the conversation at www.devpath.fm or on Twitter at devpathfm. Hello and welcome to the DevPath podcast where I ask experienced engineers about their careers and their experiences leveling up into senior and leadership roles. Today I'm talking with Jen Luker, who is a lead developer. Jen, if you want to say hi and tell everybody what you do day to day. Hi, I actually just recently got promoted, so I am an engineering manager now. Pretty awesome. Uh, I currently work at Formidable, uh, mostly on front-end technologies. So I uh, focus a lot on React and Node and GraphQL and accessibility features, things like that. From those things, what do you think is, is the one thing that gets you the most motivated? Accessibility is always the top of that list. But when you're talking about programming, solving puzzles, no matter what they are, really just gets me excited. Mm Mm-hmm. So when you say accessibility, what do you mostly focus on? Mostly usability by everyone, not just those with disabilities. I think of accessibility Mm -hmm. as a way for everyone to access the web in a way that they find comfortable at that given time. With some people, they need uh, longer term usages of things like assistive technologies, whereas the rest of us may use it on a regular basis for something like TV and how explosions are really loud, but conversations are really quiet. So Mm -hmm. subtitles are great. So how did you kind of get into that space? Did you, have you always been passionate about accessibility or is it something that's more recent? I've been passionate about it a lot longer than I knew I was passionate about it, mostly because I was raised with a uh, mostly deaf mother. Mm-hmm. So I grew up with uh, half sign language, half you know, English uh, mm-hmm. in the household and just kind of having to revolve around a little bit of that deaf culture. And I also had a terminally ill sister that by the time she died was deaf, blind, and mm. disabled. So uh, watching both of those people in so close to me in my life work through the world, uh, especially as the web was becoming really huge, really had an impact on how I saw the web through their eyes. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you kind of have that very intimate understanding of what that's like, which probably gives you a pretty, pretty big advantage in understanding those problems. Yeah, it's true. But it actually took a lot longer for me to get into the space in general. So it's only been the last few years that I've discovered how badly the web behaves when it comes to accessibility features that are built into basic HTML that we'd seen way back in the day. So I've taken it upon myself essentially to try to educate as much as I can, mostly because of the fact that I can only fix the web itsy bitsy teeny tiny bits at a time as an individual person. But if I could inspire others to consider the same sorts of considerations, then I'm helping make the whole web a better place and not just the small places where I can physically code it myself. Yeah. And I think that's one of those things um, that you don't realize if you're not living it to some degree. The web is, you know, they're old technologies and we're using them for things that maybe they weren't originally designed for. um, And they're pretty terrible at accessibility as a whole. Um, I mean, there, there are efforts to improve it, but there's, 
the practices we use and then the way the technologies were designed, maybe didn't have people who had different preferences in mind. And I think I see it as the exact opposite of that, mm-hmm. actually, uh, <laughs> in, the, in that uh, the web itself is accessible. The tools that are used to see it and read it and hear it and watch it and listen to it and learn with it are all built into semantic HTML. And it wasn't until CSS came on the scene that we started doing things that caused problems. And then JavaScript went from blinking buttons to an actual language that could very deeply interact and and develop the web. And as new developers learned those technologies, they forgot about semantic HTML and how Mm. it is inherently accessible. So whenever you're adding those features on top, usually, you know, way back, I'm really old school peeps. So way back, you'd build a website with HTML and then you'd add your CSS and then you'd add your cool little features with JavaScript. And now we're doing it Mm -hmm. in just the opposite. We're building things with JavaScript and CSS and JS or standard CSS. And then we're remembering after we're all done, oh, someone has a problem seeing contrast. Yeah, so it's it's less of a problem with the technologies and more about our application of the technologies and kind of the new stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's actually interesting that you bring that up because HTML, um, now that I think about it from just like a document standpoint, that's not that crazy. But when you start adding like superfluous UI elements that are manipulating things with CSS or JavaScript, that starts to get a little bit weird. Well, we came up with a div and suddenly the whole world became a div. And that was yeah. a problem because a div doesn't mean anything or do anything. But we started using a div for everything, including mm-hmm. things like buttons and drop downs and custom elements that, you know, we just didn't take into account things like, you know, the ability to navigate through a keyboard or the ability to understand it in the same layout format as you're resizing. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, a lot of it is the application, the ways that we've done things is both ingenious and terrible. Mm -hmm. So tell me how you got started and how you got to the point you are now. How far back do you want me to go? As far as you want to go. So when I was born, (laughs) and this is actually applicable, I promise. Awesome. My, my father was actually working with big mainframe systems for uh, banks and various other like large-scale financial institutions where they had a lot of computers and stuff in their systems long before the rest of us did. And because of that, uh, he always had a little bit of, he was always, we always grew up with technology. We had the first computers come on the scene. I had my own Commodore 64. I learned a program out of magazines. It was a lot of fun as a kid. And there was a point when I was about nine years old when my parents wouldn't buy me Donkey Kong. So I coded it myself using BASIC and my Commodore 64. And it was glorious. It was hideous. But at nine years old, it was magical. I could make it happen at all. So that was essentially the very first start of my programming life. Mm -hmm. Uh, The entire time I was growing up, I wanted to be a vertebrate paleontologist from the time I was four. And I realized when I was graduating high school and going into college that I was watching my friends and one friend had always wanted to be a marine biologist since he was the same age as me, like four or five years old. His room was covered in whales and otters and 
50 million different kinds of fish, mm-hmm. but he was always in the garden, always. And his garden went from this little tiny patch in the corner to taking up about two thirds of his yard. And uh, he went into horticulture in the end. So I was watching him and I was looking at me and realized that my walls were completely covered in geological maps and dinosaur books on the shelves and mm-hmm. calendars, but I spent all my time programming. And so I went into mm-hmm. programming instead. That took a little while. I took a seven-year hiatus to have three kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I actually started a bit later. After that, I got my first job as a programmer kind of under the table, actually. I was a call center agent. And instead of taking calls, they had me programming essentially a knowledge base and a testing software for them. Uh, and then they got ca- they caught me. And by they, I mean the bosses Mm-hmm. said, hey, why aren't you on the phones at all? And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, why aren't you on the phones? I'm like, well, because <laughs> you told me to code this thing. And they're like, you're supposed to be on calls. And they're like, yeah, yeah, you're supposed to be on calls. So instead of getting backed up, I left mm-hmm. and got my first job as a programmer officially at a company called Dunhill Vacation News. And they hired me essentially because I said that I was new and I had no bad habits. And so they could train me up any way they wanted me to. And apparently that pleased them because I worked there for two years. Okay. After that, I went to a different company who did not treat me very well. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a, like, you know, all the horror stories of bad things done to women devs. Mm-hmm. All of those and then some were done at that job. Oh, that's terrible. So it was two years of that job before I was essentially fired for getting engaged. Mm-hmm. And um, and actually took the next job and the next six years to get over that. Oh, I imagine. Yeah, that seems that seems very traumatic. Luckily, I got a great boss who jokingly called me an abused developer very early on in my working relationship there, and realized how true he was, and ended up working with me for those six years essentially to get me out of the fear of everything essentially it was a mm-hmm. it was a fear of my bosses a fear of one-on-ones fear that if i was late by 3 minutes i was going to get fired you know it was a really fascinating job i was actually at a point in my life where i had multiple job offers for the very first time and i was starting to see that maybe i was actually worth something as a dev mm. i was mid-level at about that point and i had one job where I went to and said, okay, single mom, three kids, what are my hours? I have to have a little bit of flexibility. And mm-hmm. they said, yeah, yeah, you know, we have some flexibility. I mean, we're pretty strict about the eight to five thing, but, you know, because you're so close to your kid's school, you could always just go take your lunch then to go do like school things, but it's pretty close to eight to five. I'm like, really? No, no flexibility about that? And I'm like, well, you know, this one guy, his wife has cancer, so we let him come in at nine sometimes. And I'm like, okay, well. So no flexibility there. And this other job ended up saying, you know, when I asked the same question, you know, when do you need me here? What do the hours look like? And they kind of looked at each other and looked at me and went, sometime during the day? <laughs> like that job. I'll take that job. Yeah. And it ended up being like the best job of my life. And after working there for six years, I was kind of reaching that point where I I wanted to grow differently than the path that was being laid out for me. 
Mm-hmm. And at that point, I joined Formidable, and I've been there for about six months. Okay. So it's been a yeah, crazy so, ride. Yeah, that's 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 from then to now, I guess. <laughs> um, so it actually, a couple a couple things kind of stuck out to me in there. One is um, you mentioned coming into development a little bit later in life. Was that something you think affected your career? Or has it been uh, early on? Was it kind of a, a you know an insecurity, or is it something that you've just always accepted and never really struggled with? There's always a little bit of uh, concern about that in the back of my head, mm-hmm. especially since when you look at it, there's 19 year olds that are changing the world. Most of sure. them are 22 now, uh, and there are 24 year olds that are running companies. Mm-hmm. And I didn't actually go back to college, and I never did graduate, but I didn't go back to college until I was 24, 25. So mm-hmm. by the time these people had already started, run through six years, done all of these things, developed all these cool things, I had three kids. I was raising mm-hmm. children and taking care of the house and you know, being mommy. And I didn't, you know, I missed out on those six years. So I felt yeah. like for the longest time, I was six years behind everybody else. And I had to really come to terms with that fact. Hmm. Well, I almost wonder if maybe you weren't six years behind, but you had six years of alternative experience that you could draw on. So a lot of a lot of devs, uh, especially young devs, struggle at working with others. And I feel like maybe that's a skill you probably had in abundance after six years raising three kids. Well, I had three kids within 19 months. So it was definitely mm. trying to learn how to juggle wildly different personalities that were very close together mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I almost wonder if that's uh, not a stumbling block so much as it is something that you can draw a different perspective um, that might make you a better engineer in some ways. You know, they call it a soft skill, but to be honest, I think that those human interactions are actually the hard skills. Being able oh, to yeah. step away and curl up alone and work with just a computer who is going to do exactly what you tell it. Even if you tell Mm -hmm. it to do something wrong, it will do exactly what you tell it to do. It's predictable. Humans are never predictable. Humans are messy. Humans are wild. Even the most calm, normal human has a breaking point. Mm -hmm. So trying to navigate around people, and not only that, but everything that we develop is for people. It's not for another machine. It's not for someone who's going to be ordinary and predictable and fit within our very standard form field samples. So Mm. everything that we do is for people. And trying to keep that in mind, it's just something that people tend to completely forget. Um, I want to ask if you think the the six year break, but along with just being a normal engineer, uh, do do you think you dealt a lot with imposter syndrome, or do you currently deal with imposter syndrome? I actually have a whole talk on this. It's true. It's to the uh, movie Forbidden Planet, and I really, really love it. And I really hope that a few more conferences pick it up because I adore that talk. Essentially, it comes down to this imposter pit syndrome absolutely suffered from it and did Mm -hmm. for a very long time, especially during those two horrible years. And I kind of came to this realization at one point while watching Forbidden Planet that we have feelings like anger and frustration and jealousy. And we've been trained from birth that these feelings are meant to incite change. They're Mm. meant to cause a response that makes things different. And 
we are really good at those. I mean, we're really good at feeling them. We're not always good at responding to them. But when it comes to imposter syndrome, we've essentially told ourselves, an entire industry of people, that it's okay to just sit there and feel it and that everybody feels it. And that's the end. And you're supposed to do things like take a break, but you're going to feel it. And I realize that imposter syndrome is not supposed to be something that we just sit with. It's supposed to be something like anger and frustration and fear that incites change. That if you're starting to feel imposter syndrome, you need to start talking about it. You need to start figuring out why right at that moment you're feeling it and start considering it as a tool or a metric to observe yourself and to figure out what it is that you personally need at that moment. If you're in a room full of people, for instance, that are all talking about something that you don't know and you're starting to feel imposter syndrome, is it because everybody feels it in the industry or is it because you're in a room and you don't feel like you understand? You know, and at that point, you have to start asking yourself questions like, what can I do right now about that? Or what can I schedule to fix that? Is it something that I need to just let go of because I'm never going to be in this room with this conversation again? Or can I just join the conversation and start asking questions? The feeling is supposed to incite change. And because of that, I think that yes, everyone feels it, just like everyone feels anger and frustration. But the only time it becomes an actual syndrome is when you just let it sit and you just feel it and you don't do anything about it and it just causes things to get worse and it makes things worse, and then you burn out. That's really, really insightful. Um, I feel like it takes a very special level of introspection to be able to look at imposter syndrome as more of a, a symptom. I, I think being able to look at it as a symptom that you can treat is, again, very insightful and also encouraging on a lot of levels. And I think that just like any emotion, it takes practice to learn to recognize it, and it takes practice to learn how to deal with it. And the more practice we get, the better we're going to be at recognizing it in its early stages and understanding what it is it's trying to tell you about yourself. Sometimes it really is, you're stressed out, you're frustrated, you've been looking at this bug for four hours and it's not going away, go take a break. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not that you're stupid. It's not that you're not smart enough. It's that your brain auto-corrects for things after a while, and you're going to continue to miss that semicolon or that typo. It's just going to be. So just step away for a while. Tell me about your, your kind of your first experience where you provided mentorship or leadership to other developers. I think it was at DDM, the six-year job. Mm-hmm. And when I was hired, I was a contractor at first. We were working on front-end technologies, uh, revamping a website, and some people more junior than me, some people were more senior. I was kind of in that middle, but I was also kind of the little sister. And I think that that job gave me a lot of ability to not only be mentored, but also to mentor others. And I've made some really great long-term friends because of that job. So what was that experience like where you maybe realized you had something to, to teach other people? So there's a couple of different ways to look at recognizing that you can help others or recognizing mm-hmm. that you know something and others don't. And one of them is to kind of lord it over them. Mm-hmm. Another one is to gatekeep it. And the third one, which is my favorite, is to clap excitedly and share it with them. It's very much, it can be one of those things where it's like, 
you know, the 10,000 people are going to learn something that's common knowledge to everyone else today. Mm-hmm. So are you going to laugh at them and make fun of them and belittle them for it? Or are you going to get super excited and get to share this brand new experience with them? Yeah. And I think that taking that response to sharing knowledge regarding technology and programming and different tools and techniques, it just, it helps, it helps keep the whimsy and it helps keep the, the beauty of being able to type a few commands in and refresh a page and see something happen and to be able to give people that new, that feeling of you know, Eureka, the ability to do something new or a new way of doing something or a new technology that just kind of just solved their problem that they've spent way too long on. You know, it it can be a very exciting moment for both of you. It sounds like you're, you're someone who has a lot of wisdom or maybe just a very unique perspective. But do you think that's something that maybe that characteristic of yours is, is part of the reason why you've kind of grown into the like leadership role you're in now? Never make the same mistake twice and always learn from the one you made. And if mm. possible, learn from the ones other people made so you don't have to make them <laughs> either. Because mistakes are painful. And they're yeah. beautiful in the ability to make you grow. But they are painful. And avoiding them is not necessarily the best way to go about that path. Uh, just because of the fact that you learn so thoroughly because of them. And like the there's the you know phrase that the the path to success is paved by failure. Mm-hmm. And I think that I've had a lot of opportunity to fail safely. And I've had a lot of opportunity to take the time to look at those failures and learn from them. And I've been given a lot of freedom to explore that within various teams and technologies. And as far as the whimsy, I feel that as adults, we let go of that so easily and -hmm. everything becomes serious. And the things that are funny and the things that are silly, we kind of roll our eyes at. And there's definitely different people with different senses of humor. I'm, you know, I don't laugh at a lot of common jokes, but I do still giggle when I turn the Christmas lights on. Mm-hmm. So it's about finding that part of you that can still see wonder and beauty in the world and hanging on to it. Mm-hmm. So a, a question I like to ask that isn't uh, always the easiest to answer but I like to try to humanize the people I interview. Um, and it's easy for someone who is listening and is in a, a more junior position or is trying to get into the industry to hear people I'm interviewing talk about their experiences, uh, their successes and their failures, and just kind of write those successes off and, and say, well, you know, that person succeeded because they are that person. Um, and it won't work out so well for me because I'm not as good at engineering or I'm not as smart or I'm not as lucky as that person. Um, so to humanize you, um, not to embarrass you, what is something that you consider yourself to be bad at? I'm not a creator. Hmm. <clears throat> I had to come to terms with this a while ago when I was seeing all the other people that were creating amazing things and I'd sit down to create something. And I had an extraordinarily hard time coming up with that you know, quote, original idea. Mm -hmm. And I realized along the path of trying to find my own original ideas that where my 
my specialty lies is in taking what exists and making it even better. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy silly things like Webpack configs and writing a webhook for Slack that hooks into GitHub and ties into Pivotal and allows us to see the PRs as they're posted based Mm -hmm. on whatever, you know? I like making tools that make lives easier for devs, but I am not very good at coming up with that quote original idea. I'm really bad at that. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't make me a bad developer. That doesn't make me unsuccessful. That doesn't mean I'm going to be famous. But what it does mean is that I can take those things, those in their raw form, and make them better, make them more functional, make them more accessible, make them more beautiful, make them more easy to use. I can take what they are and make them more. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes I do that through my open source work in that I'm not often coming up with a new feature as much as I am in maintenance mode. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's a definite and absolute need for maintainers not just for open source projects, but for your own projects and for the projects of your friends. And, you know, people are always having ideas and they're always bouncing ideas back and forth between people and people come up with great things. But I can add to that. And that is where my magic lies. And so just because you may not be the one to come up with a great idea doesn't mean you can't make a good idea great. Mm. Well, and I, I think for me, I, I've learned over time that originality for the most part is sort of derivative or some kind of iteration on someone else's idea. Um, it's not always the spark of it, it's usually not the spark of inspiration. And, you know, you go and, and make some wonderful work of art. Usually you found something and you kind of like it, but there's something you hate about it. And you go fix that thing you hate and you've made a new thing. Pretty much. Mm -hmm. Something that I want to say that might be more applicable to the original question that you asked is that no matter who you are in the world, someone knows more and someone knows less. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be someone who knows more than you at one thing, but you know more than that same person in something else. It's like Mm -hmm. the more I get to know people that are speakers and thought leaders the more I realize that they're just dorky people that have weird relationships with toys or friends or dogs or animals or computers or mechanical keyboards. Everyone has a quirk. It's very fun. And most of the time they know a lot about one little tiny facet of this world and they know absolutely nothing about everything else. Mm -hmm. So I am quite knowledgeable about accessibility. I know nothing about Node. I can use Mm -hmm. Node because of the basics of what we do for building websites. But setting up a Node server, never done it. Don't know how. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, I know a lot about a very small portion of this web. And there's so much that I have no idea. Don't even know what to research to get to find out that it exists. 
So, I mean, no matter what you know, there's always going to be someone who knows more. But no matter what you know, there's always someone who's coming in behind you who doesn't know it either. And they're Mm -hmm. learning it. And that's your opportunity to mentor. And that's your opportunity to make the world bigger and better. When I felt imposter syndrome probably the strongest was uh, being in conversations, like you were saying earlier, where people are talking about things that you don't understand. And what I've noticed now uh, actually happens in those conversations is that if you really pay attention, uh, only a couple of people in those conversations that might have, you know, eight people chiming in uh, really know the entirety of what's being talked about. Not only that, but oftentimes they're waiting for their own turn. They're not even listening to the person who's talking before them. They're too busy thinking about how to reframe the question or how their answer applied to the original in their way. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, you're absolutely right. There's not everyone in that room who sounds like they know what they're talking about actually knows what they're talking about. Most Mm -hmm. of the time, a good chunk of those people are BSing their way through trying to not sound stupid because they don't know what's going on. And you could do that too. You could, (laughs) but you're going to come out of it with a hefty load of imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Or you could start asking questions because I can guarantee you that at least one, if not half the room has the same question. Absolutely. And it's, it's, dig deeper. It's, it's so valuable to be the person who is willing to ask dumb questions. Creating a culture where stupid questions are okay is really powerful. If, everyone's comfortable asking questions that they're scared to ask. That means basically daily, everyone is getting a lot better at what they do. Um, And that makes your whole team much, much better. So one thing that I I kind of have a practice of doing is um, especially in in meetings where there's a lot of uh, junior engineers, if there's a question that sticks out to me where I, I may really not know it, but I may also know the answer. Um, but I know it's something that at one point was a sticking point for me. I will intentionally ask a dumb question just to to kind of be the, the sacrifice so that everyone knows it's okay to do that. I applaud you so much for this. No, I think I, it, it comes from being really afraid to ask questions at a previous point in my career. So it's, it's got a little bit of a selfish act, but it I, I hope it helps other people. It certainly does. Uh, It is difficult to be the one that is a sacrificial lamb when you're going to ask a stupid question and you feel like it's going to be a stupid question. And it can be particularly debilitating for like women and people of color Mm -hmm. because of the fact that when we ask a question, it means that we don't know something. And if we don't know something, Mm -hmm. we don't know anything. Mm. And therefore... Just by asking that one dumb question, we've discredited our entire careers and thrown away our lives. And that's not necessarily the truth, Mm -hmm. but it sure feels like it. Exactly. As long as it feels that way, it's really, really hard to to kind of step up and and let yourself feel uncomfortable uh, and ask the questions that you're afraid to ask. Like, let me give a a little bit more of a real world example. Uh, Mm -hmm. People on stage. People that are at the conferences speaking that you go to, um, the great majority of them will not hold Q&A sessions because they are terrified of someone asking questions that they don't know the answer to. Hmm. And it can very easily happen. Most of the time, the reasons that we've uh, developed the talks that we have is because we wanted to learn something new and we've written a talk around our learning of this new thing, which means we're not necessarily 
full-on experts on this thing. We're still learning it. But these are the cool things that we've discovered and the things that we've developed as we've learned it, right? So people that know it better can very easily ask a question that we don't know the answer to in order to discredit us. And that's very scary. So even the people that you think know the subject really well because they're standing on a stage, they're afraid of you. (laughs) (laughs) And that doesn't mean that we don't want to talk to you. We absolutely want to talk to you. We just don't want to be standing on stage in front of 500 people and get asked question after question of things we don't know. Mm. And it can be very scary to say, I don't know. But there's a lot of things we can't know. Like our brains are not physically capable of holding all of the knowledge of the universe. So. Mm-hmm. Well, and I feel pretty strongly that uh, as someone who was at one point very afraid to say, I don't know about anything. The first step in becoming a really, really good engineer is, is being okay with saying, I don't know and asking dumb questions because every time you do that, um, you're going to learn something new and, retaining that information is what makes people seem like they know everything. It's because they ask some dumb question at some point and they remember it. I kind of wonder if it's the stupid questions that you're willing to ask that makes you a productive um, Mm -hmm. developer. And and by productive, I don't mean you work 300 hours a week. I mean that you work smarter, not harder. Mm -hmm. And by asking those questions and, getting the answers to how to find something or where something might be located, where you can get closer to the answer kind of allows you to skip those hour killers, right? Where you're sitting there hunting through folder after folder, trying to find this file that it might possibly, where could it be looking and looking and looking and looking and you spent 45 minutes or an hour just looking for the file and then you finally find it. Or you Mm -hmm. can lean over to the person next to you and say, hey, so I'm looking for this thing. Do you happen to know where it is? And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's in this folder. You're like, great, thanks. Hour solved, right? They're more productive Mm -hmm. by a whole hour because they didn't spend an hour looking for a file or looking for a class or looking for information. Now, I'm a very huge proponent that when you're a new dev, your goal as a new dev is to learn how to learn and to Mm -hmm. learn how to find information. Anything that you do after that is cake. Like if you don't memorize syntax, I've been in this field for 13 years. I still Google syntax on a daily basis. It's okay Mm -hmm. to look up syntax. I promise. Okay. The problems that you run into is not knowing how to look it up, not knowing that it might exist or not knowing how to ask if it exists. Mm -hmm. So learn that because from that you can learn any language. You can learn any new technology. It's just a matter of learning how to learn and learning how to look up things. Mm-hmm. So as a new dev, focus on that. And from that, you can find out anything. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think that's uh, the, the trick to being a really good engineer is to, even if you don't know, know how to find out. Um, Jen, before we wrap up, I do want to ask, where should someone go to learn more about Jen Luker? You can always find me on Twitter at knitcodemonkey. Well, Jen, I really appreciate you sharing your experience and your wisdom um, and insight with me, but also with anyone who listens. I mean, hopefully there's uh, a, lot, a lot of people who get you know, the benefit that I, I've received of, of just having a conversation with you. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening to devpath.fm. Want to ask a question? Send an email to jacob at devpath.fm.